This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything related to the world of work. I'm Tom Hudson, and today I'm your guest host. The format for this episode is a little different than our normal conversations. We'll open with our regular host, Beverly Jones, sharing an engaging story from the early days of her own career. She'll talk about some of the challenges facing women back when she was in college, and she'll describe how she moved past fear and learned to create change a little bit at a time. Bev originally performed this entertaining piece as part of a community theater performance featuring several storytellers in Rappahannock County, Virginia. At the end of the story, I'll ask Bev some questions about her experience and seek her advice for others facing challenges. I had my first big career break when I was 13. I'd started early to earn money because my parents encouraged kids to pay their own way. They'd come to the States after Dad left the New Zealand Army at the end of World War II, and they said you can be anything you want in America, but you have to get out there and work for it. My big opportunity was a job in the fashion office of LaSalle's, the department store in Toledo, Ohio. I started there in junior high as a volunteer model in small events staged in the store's restaurant, but then they gave me a paid job helping to prepare for major fashion shows at the amazing wage of $2 an hour. My favorite task was running around the big store pulling accessories like hats and pearl earrings. For a single show, I might have to collect as many as 50 pairs of shorties. Those were the short, wider beige gloves that models had to wear to complement their ladylike outfits. When I modeled in a show, I was not one of those beautiful, tall girls who wore wedding gowns. I was the little one. At about five foot one, I could wear preteen fashions, even as a senior in high school. But modeling kids' clothes meant I had to stay skinny. I was thinking about that one day as I sat at the kitchen table, sipping tea after school. In the Jones family, true to our British roots, tea parties were how we spent time together. Even a little kid could enjoy tea, loaded up with milk and sugar, and always served in a bone china teacup. So that afternoon, as I took a sip, I thought about how I loved the tea ritual, and yet, to stay slim, I needed to eat much less sugar. But I couldn't imagine drinking tea without sugar. Then I was inspired to reduce sugar so gradually I'd never even miss it. As I sat there, staring at a heaping teaspoon, I decided to start by removing just one little pinch. Then every day I'd remove another grain or two, and I'd never even notice a change in the taste. Well, I did that, and soon I'd learn to drink sugarless tea without a moment of feeling deprived. After my career in fashion and high school, I headed off to study journalism at Ohio University. 
I arrived at OU in 1964 with the first of the baby boomers. I loved the little college town of Athens, tucked into the hills of southeastern Ohio, and I was thrilled to be on my own. But my first days on campus brought some shocks. One of them was the co-ed handbook. This pamphlet described the curfews, dress codes, and other special rules for female students. It said that, as a freshman woman, on weeknights I had to be in my dorm by 10 o'clock. I had to wear a skirt to dinner and to classes. For Sunday dinner, I had to wear nylon stockings and high heels. And for those who wanted to light up, the rules said that women could smoke in public, but only if they were sitting, because ladies never smoke while standing. I enjoyed college, despite these silly rules for women. I just figured that's how life is. By the spring of 68, when I was a senior, I'd completed my journalism major, and I was doing an honors project in literature. My topic was how women became the first existential characters in early novels. I know, it sounds pretty pompous now, but I still think my idea was good. My point was that while male characters in early fiction still seemed like cartoons, female characters began to examine their own lives. In other words, women like Jane Austen's Elizabeth Bennet were self-aware. And a reason they didn't just take things for granted is that they looked at society from the position of being outsiders. Elizabeth Bennet was insightful about herself because she saw the absurdity of social restrictions that limited her life. I never completed my thesis. That's because my male advisor rejected the topic. He said, existential philosophers believe that women cannot be fully developed people. Those uppity French guys wrote that women are defined only by their relationships with men. They claim that women are born to serve and support men, and they don't have what it takes to be fully grown people, either in novels or in life. I'd read stacks of books and had weekly one-on-one conversations with my advisor, and I thought of this professor as my mentor. Now, I was shocked by his acceptance of the idea that some people are just better than other people. And I was crushed by his comments suggesting that women don't have the intellect to do first-class work. So, I refused to switch topics. And when my advisor threatened me with an F... I said, I don't care. Sadly, it turned out that students who did not complete their honors theses got an incomplete instead of an F. And I discovered that even though I had all the requirements, I could not graduate with an incomplete on my record. But still, I did not budge. I said I didn't want to graduate from a university which required me to acknowledge that I could not become a complete human being. And so, I finished that academic year without a diploma. Suddenly, I felt like I was a Jane Austen character, and I saw the ridiculous rules and limits everywhere in our lives. Of course, I'd been annoyed by special policies for women like curfews and dress codes, but it had not yet hit me that these rules reflected an assessment of women as people who are weaker, less talented, and essentially inferior to men. Suddenly, I understood what the world really thought about us. 
and this broke my heart. I was so hurt and angry. I knew I had to do something just to get on with my life. And then I remembered the power of creating change through tiny steps. And I decided to launch what I thought of as the sugar grain process. I didn't really think I could change society, but to move past my own pain, I had to at least make a statement. So I pledged that for every day I stayed at OU, I would do at least one tiny thing in support of equality for women. At first, it was easy, and my thing might be as basic as speaking up in a class. But soon it became harder to think up my thing for the day, and I had to move out of my comfort zone. So I met with women friends, and we started a group. I spoke to every class or club that would have me, and I offered to give speeches to all male groups, like the Bar Association and the Rotary Club. I was born a cautious person, and many of these activities were things I did not want to do. But the pain when I did nothing was worse than the fear of doing a little something, so I kept going. As it turned out, the sugar grain process went on much longer than I'd first expected. On what should have been my graduation day, I married a classmate who happened to be the editor of the student newspaper, The Post. Now, here's a side note for any of you friends who are thinking, that's when I married former OU Post editor Andy Alexander. Well, you're wrong. He's two years younger than me, and when he was a sophomore and I was a senior, we never thought of dating. My husband, in what turned out to be just a little starter marriage, hated the war in Vietnam and he wanted to fight the military draft. He planned to stay in Athens to grapple with the draft board, and a counselor told us that if he went to jail, I could not visit unless we were married. So we put a notice on the post bulletin board as a general invitation to our wedding. My parents, always willing to let me set my own course, tolerated our ceremony. It was off campus in a lodge hall that was tented with silk army surplus parachutes. Before our vows, a musician friend played jazz on a keyboard while his buddy accompanied him with a tasteful psychedelic light show projected against all that white silk. Once we were married, I looked for work. In those days, OU hired a few honors grads from each class. Men were brought in as junior managers, and women joined the secretarial ranks at half the salary. Maybe nobody realized I hadn't graduated, and I became a secretary in the office of the executive vice president. From there, I had a good vantage point for learning about how our university operates and for spotting new ideas for my daily things. One day, after I'd worked as a secretary for a while, the dean of the College of Business walked into my office and pulled up a chair by my desk. He said he had noticed my feminist commentary and was getting a bit tired of it. He suggested that instead of just talking, I should become the first woman in his MBA program. He said, Bev, if you want to change things, you need tools, and you can get tools in a business program. The dean said it wouldn't be easy because most faculty and just about all the students hated the idea of allowing women in MBA programs. 
and this was pretty normal in that era. It's hard to believe now, but in those days, women were often unwelcome in professional programs, on the grounds that graduate courses were wasted on women, because we'd just quit work and have babies. The dean's offer was attractive, and I said yes, but I told him there was just one problem. I had not graduated. I explained what had happened, and he waved his hand, not worried by any decision from the English department. And so, as a bonus, once I was accepted into grad school, my undergraduate diploma mysteriously arrived in our mailbox, only about a year late. Being the only woman in the business program was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Some of my classmates mocked me, but most of them just shunned me. It toughened me up, but it was very lonely. Eventually, I found a job writing for WOUB, the public media affiliate at OU, and things got easier when I shifted my business studies to just part-time. Doing radio shows gave me a new way to deliver my messages, and soon my voice was very well known around campus. It annoyed a lot of people. Then, my second great career opportunity came in 1971. The OU president, Claude Soule, invited me to his office and said it was time for me to put my money where my mouth was. He asked me to spend a year writing a report in support of my claims that OU was routinely discriminating against women. He gave me an executive office in beloved Cutler Hall and the title of Assistant to the President. Despite my new title, I didn't think President Sola, a former lawyer, expected much from me in my report. If he were serious, wouldn't he have appointed a blue ribbon committee and not just a 25-year-old grad student? I was not confident of my mandate and wasn't sure how to go about the project. So now my anger didn't keep me up at night. Fear is what kept me awake. I was terrified that I'd let other women down, but mostly I was afraid that I'd make a fool of myself. So I applied the sugar grain process and just kept working, figuring things out a bit at a time. I could usually overcome the little fear of taking one small step because the action helped me overcome the massive fear of total failure. I interviewed scores of students, faculty members, and other staff, from house cleaners to the dean of women, and I did lots of other research. In writing my report, I tried to build a case that the university was engaged in systematic discrimination. Of course, I hinted that we women had the potential to bring a lawsuit. When I delivered the report, I included 21 recommendations for change. Of these, one of my favorites was to allow women to join the popular OU band, then known as 110 Marching Men. Soon after receiving the report, and a couple of months before the passage of Title IX, President Sowell accepted 18 of my suggestions, ranging from equalizing salaries to funding athletics for women. Suddenly, he pushed OU to the forefront of opening doors for college women. And at the same time, he promoted me to create OU's Equal Opportunity Program. I cannot overstate 
how unprepared I was for that leadership role. I was scared, and I didn't know much about management. But now, at least, I had a sense of how to keep myself hustling, and I pushed ahead with sugar grains. That job worked out pretty well, and then, eventually, I headed off to Washington to work my way through Georgetown's law school. And I've been working ever since, these days, as an executive coach. But now, I'm in my 70s, and I'm thinking about how to structure the next decade of my life. To you, It may seem that, at this age, framing my life with a series of career goals no longer makes sense. But here's what I found. It's not really about the goals. The goals are just triggers. They simulate a bit of courage, enough to help me try something new. Then, the joy is in the action. Goals are powerful because they push me out there to do something. When I have career-type goals, I keep doing little things, and these small actions are the juice. For me, sugar grains are still sweet. The end. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Masters in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. We've been listening to Beverly Jones talk about her sugar grain process, and now we get to talk with her one-on-one a little bit about that process. Uh, Bev, I, I was so impressed with your your uh, sugar grain process, and you and I have talked about this before. Uh, it just seems to apply to so many different things in life. It, it absolutely does. And, of course, this was original to me because when I was 13 or 14, whatever it was, I I didn't know about small steps. But many, many people have um, – written about it, and there are many kinds of processes because it is one of the ways human beings have created everything. It is a really important thing to remember, though, because sometimes it's easy to be overwhelmed by the need to do big things, and and we can do it in in little steps. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that uh, just just a bit because... uh, during all of the times, except when you were a youth, that, let me just say from college on, I have known you through this process. And you have never struck me as being a patient person. 
And in the sense <laughs> that you're, you always have causes, you always have things, and you always want to be five steps ahead of where you are. Now, how does that persona that you have, and you've had it in business and you've had it in law, uh, how does that translate to the sugar grain process, which seems to be a much slower, much more mediated process? Well, the thing is to break everything into small pieces, every goal, every mission, every vision. I certainly, uh, in my very early years, my college years, when I was thinking about how many changes had to happen if women were to have a a chance at, at building careers or fully enjoying life, when I was thinking about that, I couldn't, uh, wait for the change. But what I could do is think about what I'm going to do tomorrow or what we can do this week or what goal this group can have for the next couple of months. The secret is to not get so hung up on the action that's going to happen in the future. Kind of know the big picture, know the mission or the vision of of where you're heading, but then focus your energy on the things that you can control and the things that you can do in the near term. And when you have short-term goals and you do something, it's very gratifying and you, you get a sense of energy and it's kind of easy to go to the next immediate goal. But if you're always thinking about the far distant future, it's just so uh, frustrating that it, sometimes you don't do anything at all. So, so is the sugar grain method, and, and I, I guess we don't have to label it, but, but Sometimes people work with labels a little better. Yeah. Is it a planning method or is it an action method? Oh, good question. Um, It is a method for planning and implementing action steps. It's also part of the way um, you can manage yourself. Now, I, I, when I use the term process, or sometimes I say principle, I'm really kind of making fun of myself because I started thinking of things like this <laughs> as a teenager and not knowing much about project management or process improvement in those days. Um, and it's it's it is a um, one thing involved here is a technique of calming yourself, focusing on what you can control, and starting to make a step toward wherever you want to go. So it's it's almost, for me, um, it became almost a, a meditative approach because, you know, part of my wanting to plan ahead, wanting to get everything done, there's an element of anxiety in that. And the, the starting point, if you really want to be clear and 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 and, and make good choices, is to, is to kind of be calm. And so recognizing that, yes, there's something I can do, um, and I'm going to think about that, and I'm going to, if necessary, imagine what I'm going to do in the morning. That's kind of a calming process for me. Uh, And it's um, the little, each little chapter of it um, culminates with the action and then the sense of gratification and the energy to do the next step. So you you feel some sense of accomplishment as you go along instead of waiting for the big reward. Yeah, and when I'm coaching now, and I don't 
as a rule, call it the sugar cane process, although I sometimes do because I found that the visual of a little sugar grain can kind of help people remember. Right. But but other people might talk about it in other ways. But as a coach, what I find is if I can take people do little steps in the direction of the, the goals they want to reach, the immediate impact is to help them build confidence, um, to clarify a little bit where they want to go, to uh, come to be more imaginative about the next step. So it doesn't matter to me how very small the starting steps are. When I'm working on a client who's really action-focused but maybe kind of blocked or um, confused, if I can just get them to do some very little things, um, the way each person responds to um, the satisfaction of getting something done, particularly if it's something difficult and maybe they've been procrastinating, is is to um, have a burst of energy and confidence and clarity. I mean, they're tiny little bursts from tiny little steps, but once you get people moving that way, it tends to accelerate. I was so impressed in, in what you talked about and having lived through it in, in part with you of the enormity of the changes that you were confronted as a young uh, college person. And after that, within the university environment, I, I don't think people today would understand totally how restrictive things were no. and how exclusionary things were uh, uh, against women. I mean, that... All of the things that you tackled, uh, that you talked about, uh, the enormity of all of that just seems to be overwhelming. So I assume that you use this process to to chip away at at each part of that. Yeah, and I, um, in my in my little story, and I I look back at myself at that age, and I just was so naive and unsophisticated about how the world worked and so forth. But in my story, I tried to illustrate that I didn't know what I was doing. But one of the things I was doing was managing the fear and anxiety and trying to be uh, creative and, 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 and just making a contribution, even if it was going to turn out to be only something that I knew about. So it was, it, it was a big deal for me because I, I had a real epiphany and I, I tend to kind of look at things for a way and then every once in a while I'll look at the world in a different way and wow, you know, I see so, so much different. And that's what happened to me. I, I kind of just thought I can, I can work the system. Everything will be fine. I didn't worry too much about it. And there are other issues out there, uh, civil rights and the war in Vietnam and all kinds of things. I wasn't focused on the situation for women and then it hit me one day like a freight train. And I, I was just overwhelmed by what people must think of women to so rigorously restrict their ability to participate in the workplace, in society, in governance. Uh, it just was overwhelming. So I needed to find a way to sort myself out and kind of keep moving. So let's move that forward several decades to today. Um, 
many women that I've talked to since the um, uh, abolition of Roe versus Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court have felt for the first time, especially young women, felt for the first time some of these challenges that you faced as a young woman, but they are facing them acutely for the first time. Yeah. What what advice would you give to them uh, pursuant to your sugar grain process, you know, at, at, at adjusting to this or to make the change that they think is appropriate to make? Well, I think the first thing that, I tend to do, and and you and I have been through so many big changes in society that we can right. see them. The, the first thing is is to demonstrate that this is that that change happens um, not gradually in a straight line, but with big ups and downs, and there are many many f- setbacks. And but you, you work past the setbacks, so we don't give up or despair. That's the kind of the first thing to talk about. But what I'd suggest is people work in the lane they're in. The first thing is you want to do something. If if you see something that's totally wrong, you want to do something if only for your own um, peace with yourself, even if you're not confident that this is going to contribute to the change. So the first thing is say, I'm going to make a contribution. And then you figure out what is within your reach. It might be supporting other women. It might be giving money somewhere. It might be um, uh, thinking about uh, a career change that would have you um, playing a role in helping women or being a lawyer or whatever it is. But start with something small that is within your reach and make a commitment to keep up a cadence of activity. And if, if, you, if you do that, if you know you're kind of engaged in the fight, um, it is, uh, it's less frustrating. And one of the wonderful things is you make um, uh, good friends with colleagues who are engaged in the same thing. So, so just begin wherever you are and don't feel shy about doing something very small. Just do something very small again later. Last question area I want to talk to you about is uh, for our audience that may be approaching retirement or in retirement. I was struck by the ending of your story where you're talking about in your 70s that you are still using the process uh, to, to plan. Uh, I, I think being a close contemporary to yours, uh, to you, uh, you know, people get to this stage in life and they just say, well, there's no point in planning, you know, uh, it just doesn't fit me. But I was inspired by, by hearing what you had to say about, you know, doing this and, and having it uh, as a trigger for good in your life. Yeah, I I think it's a very individual thing, obviously, and um, different people have a different way of dealing with aging, dealing with you know managing their life. But for me, I like 
the energy that comes from accomplishing things, even if they're little things. I like the feeling that comes when I feel like I'm still contributing to the world. I'm still making a difference. I um, have found that I enjoy work. Now, work can be defined in a lot of different ways. Work can be working in our garden or um, taking care of our family. There are lots of things. But I like to acknowledge when I'm working, and I like to um, kind of plan it and do it as well as I can, and I find it satisfying to keep learning new things and trying new things. So for me, kind of pushing myself to uh, keep exploring and, and, and keep learning and keep meeting people um, is is important. And so I approach it like I would early in my career. Well, I, I, for one, enjoyed your story. I know our listeners enjoyed your story uh, as well. It's, it's nice to hear some of the personal background of, of people that we associate as uh, podcast hosts or or uh, other professionals, uh, a consultant or a lawyer, it, it's nice to peel that back and and see the real person and some of the things that motivated. So thank you for sharing all of this. And thank you, uh, Tom, for hosting today. And uh, thank you for keep, keeping up the conversations you and I have about all these things. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's it's been lots of fun. Well, let me tell you, I've got many more things on the horizon, many more problems that we'll have to work through. So these conversations will be ongoing, I guarantee you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Thanks, Beth. Today, we listened to a personal story told by our host, Beverly Jones. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your guest host, Tom Hudson. Today's tip is that you don't have to have a whole plan in order to make progress towards your vision. Just do one tiny little thing today, and then tomorrow, think up one more small action to move you in that direction. Thanks for listening to us. Please tell your friends about Jazzed About Work, and come back soon. Thank you.